Welcome to today's Principles Live Lecture. I'm Dr. Connor Sweeney. I teach in the Theology Department at Christendom College. And today I'm going to talk to you about hobbits and baptism. So there's a Tolkien theme, but there's also a theological theme as well relating to baptism. How exactly these two elements go together, that remains to be seen. But I hope to be able to shed some light on the question of what evangelization might look like at its heart, how we might become effective evangelizers in what is today a very difficult context. So a few years ago now, I wrote a book called Abiding the Long Defeat, How to Evangelize Like a Hobbit in a Disenchanted Age. The book is equal parts, one, cultural analysis, specifically of a secular or disenchanted age where God seems to be dead, in Nietzsche's evocative phrase. Two, a survival guide for Christians caught up in and a part of this age. And three, a subsequent wrestling with how to carry out Christ's command to preach the gospel, to evangelize in truth, love, and joy. Running through the entire book is the theme of baptism. Baptism understood not just juridically as a one-and-done event, as it were, but rather as a fundamental blueprint or template of an existence in Christ, where the self is really immersed into Christ's movement from cross to grave to resurrection and really sacramentally incorporated into Christ's relation to the Father as Son, indwelt and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. My emphasis here was that lacking proper awareness of this robust baptismal identity, tossed and turned by the cultural waves of secularity and our counter-reactions to it, many a good intention many a survival strategy to preserve and defend faith and protect culture, risks, ending getting, risks getting flushed down the drain of our own personal failure of faith. That is to say, action not sanctified and animated by a real encounter and an inner conversion that produces a genuine abiding in Christ, risks, on the one hand, a capitulation of faith to the zeitgeist, the proverbial spirit of the age, one aspect of which Ratzinger described as a bourgeois Pelagianism that believes it can win salvation for itself apart from God. Or, on the other hand, it risks the reduction of faith to the mentality of a pious Pelagian, as Ratzinger puts it or Joseph Pieper called it a pseudo-religious activism, where, quote, by a means of tough and a rigorous system of religious practices, by means of prayers and actions, human blessedness or justification is attained by our own religious efforts, producing a religion without love that degenerates into a sad and miserable caricature of religion as Ratzinger put it. What about hobbits? Well, my way of illustrating how the Christian should approach things like crisis, scandal, if not apocalypse in our world today, took up the image of two homebody hobbits 
trudging towards Mordor, weighed down by their cross, to be sure, but not paralyzed by fear, despair, anger, or resentment. Instead, these hobbits are animated by a truth and a love that sustains faith and that sanctifies action to the point of a eucatastrophic or unexpectedly happy resolution. Despite unimaginable circumstances, they keep faith. They abide in love. They live with hope. They act in and for the true and the good. For us, perhaps also facing unimaginable circumstances, the question is this. Can we do the same? Or, like Denethor, will we lose faith, crushed by the forces of evil arrayed against us? Like Boromir, will we give into the lure of the power of the ring, unable to endure the risk of letting go of power in the face of uncertainty and security, and so become a scandal to the way of the cross, the only way that can in fact redeem, sustain, and sanctify our action so that it actually builds up a kingdom that is truly God's and not ours. In this reflection today, and this is what I'm going to try and address today, I want to focus on the themes of baptism and hobbits in a specific way to the soul in crisis. I want to address the soul in crisis, the soul beset by scandal, and perhaps the soul experiencing apocalypse, because in truth, this is every human soul. I want to address souls for whom the normal spiritual supports for faith and meaning no longer seem effective. Selves who find themselves stretched out over a bottomless abyss of nothingness, and who thus risk giving up or spiraling into pathological and destructive reductions and distortions of faith. So I want to begin by focusing on these three words, crisis, scandal, apocalypse. And the goal is to somehow address the conditions by which we might become the most effective evangelizers. So the first word is crisis. In the original Greek, it's rendered krisis, and this comes with a sense of test, trial, clarity, decision, distinguishing, or judgment. Krisis can imply a tipping point where something can go either this way or that way. For example, a fever that either breaks or results in death. It can be a moment of clarity that demands decision, action this way or that. It calls us to account. It puts our being into question. It demands something of us. In this sense, we can think of crisis not just as something out there, i.e. the unfolding of a catastrophic event or situation, but also as something that provokes something in me, a challenge, a reckoning. What are we made of? How will we act when faced with catastrophe? Will we rise to the occasion or will we be crushed? Next, crisis coincides with scandal, or in the Greek, scandalon, in the sense that it's often what we are scandalized by that provokes the internal crises or blockages of faith that call for judgment and decision. 
Scandalon has the sense of stumbling block. It's an impediment that causes one to stumble or fall. For example, Christ calls Peter a scandalon when the first future first pope rebukes Christ for saying he must suffer and die. God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you, says Peter. Peter has here become an obstacle or an impediment, tantamount to an antichrist, no less. Get behind me, Satan, are Christ's strong words. He becomes an obstacle to the way of the cross as the only road to salvation. In turn, the cross is a scandalon, an obstacle, for Peter. It's a stumbling block to a world dominated by the libido dominandi, the will to power, which we might describe as the mode of Tolkien's ruling ring. So, to link Scandalon to Chrysis, we can say that the effect of a crisis out there is that it becomes a scandal, and thus a crisis for me in here. For example, one is scandalized by the sexual abuse crisis in the church, which is thus constituted as a stumbling block for me. It can provoke a crisis of my faith. Its effect, then, is not just limited to perpetrators and victims out there, but also becomes a scandalon, an obstacle for my own faith, or worse, and hold that thought. The third word is apocalypse, or in the Greek, apocalypsis. In popular consciousness, this word denotes a cataclysmic, catastrophic event. For example, the end of the world. Its original sense, however, is a little different. It means an unveiling or uncovering or a revelation. It has something to do with something being laid bare so as to be perceived in its essential truth. It is something shown for what it really is, stripped of its masks of pretension, so that clarity about its actual reality is attained. In the Apocalypse of St. John, of course, we have apocalypse in both senses. A catastrophic unveiling in which the true condition of a sinful world is finally laid bare and called to account. Now, apocalypse, we can relate to crisis and scandalon in the following way. A scandal, we can say, is an obstacle that causes crisis. And it's also, at the same time, an apocalypse, an unveiling, an event which forces a reckoning with something that had previously been out of sight. A scandal thus becomes a tipping point in which the essential truth of things has been made clear and which demands a judgment or a decision on my part in light of this new situation, this new revelation. Therefore, crisis, scandal, and apocalypse together constitute existential provocations to the self. What matters exactly is how we diagnose them and so act in response. And this becomes the problem, the challenge. For there are a lot of ways that things can go wrong when trying to deal with scandal, apocalypse, and crisis. The scandalized soul, for example, having experienced an unveiling and so arrived at a tipping point of crisis, may fail this test. We may slip into cognitive dissonance or something like a disassociative break from reality. If the apocalypsis is too stark, too confronting, we may shy away from an actual confrontation 
with scandal. Many different kinds of therapy are on tap in today's world if we wish to detach ourselves, make ourselves immune from scandal. Or most destructive and most common, we may give way to the terms of the scandal itself, mirroring it or doubling it in our response. That is, and we can note that the verbal form of scandalon means to limp or go lame, we may find that it seems easiest to take up the ring of power ourselves, to react to scandal with more scandal, to refuse to turn the other cheek, to refuse to break the cycle of violence, but instead take up the sword and fight fire with fire, and so lock ourselves in a kind of escalating arms race of scandal. It means getting caught up in the terms of scandal, losing our moral compass, allowing scandal to dictate our behavior so that we go lame, becoming but a shadow of our former self, caught up in reactions and oscillations, anger, fear, and bitterness, the mere image or double of the very thing that first scandalized us. Gollum is a personification of what can happen to one who gives in to scandal, as are Saruman, Boromir, and Denethor, each in their own way. Or, to mix our literary metaphors, think Anakin Skywalker. All end up embracing, however reluctantly at first, the proverbial dark side. This is the thing. Scandals are contagious. The more I allow myself to be drawn into the terms of scandal, the more I, in my hardness of heart, ignorance, fear, despair, etc., resist a deeper form of redemptive apocalypsis, the more I risk becoming entrenched in and determined by the very thing that scandalized or provoked me in the first place, the very thing that I may otherwise hate and want to resist. As French anthropologist René Girard puts it, the more the obstacle or scandal repels us, the more it attracts us. Scandals secrete increasing quantities of envy, jealousy, resentment, hatred. If nothing stops it, the spiral has to lead to a series of acts of vengeance and a perfect fusion of violence and contagion. And so if there is not a circuit breaker, for this contagious imitation, let's say, then it can lead to things like a mob that gathers to condemn an innocent victim, which of course is how Christ himself is put to death. The problem with scandals then is that by their nature, left undiagnosed or misdiagnosed or untreated, they tend to cascade and multiply, extending the original scandal and so tearing selves and communities apart. This gives new appreciation of Christ's words where he says, if your hand scandalizes you, cut it off. If your eye scandalizes you, pull it out. We are called then to cut out scandals, scandals in our hearts and our communities by resisting their contagious effects. Now the point of the above is that scandal is a threat. But unfortunately, a great many of our efforts in reaction to the many real evils in the church and in the world today may end up simply mirroring or doubling those scandals, extending and multiplying them, and thus undermining the true scandal on, the true source of redemption from scandals, that is to say, the cross of Christ.
the apocalypsis that names scandal on for what it is, and forces the self to confront scandal from the inside, at its root, and in a redemptive way. And so to address the scandals that crush faith, that make us limp, that replicate scandal in us, we need to address at its root the soul who today faces, gives way to, and is crushed by scandals which threaten the equilibrium of ourselves, the church, and the world, perhaps like never before. What concerns me here is not the fact that scandals seem to have proliferated in our world. Indeed, Girard spoke of an escalation to extreme in this regard, as the world seems to reject the true scandal on more and more. But I want to focus today on what is always more urgent, how we respond to the scandals that must come, that belong to a world that is passing away, that rejects the scandal on of love that has already overcome the world. How are we to negotiate our own scandals? Even if they don't begin as our scandals, they are now. And in truth, each darkened human heart produces enough scandals on their own to keep us occupied until our death. Let's return to our hobbits to try to flesh this image out. The hobbits have every right to be scandalized. They have every right to give up, to despair, to abandon a quest that by every rational metric will fail. They've lost the support of the fellowship, fellowship of the ring. They no longer have a people or a culture or a community. They don't have a functioning Eucharistic fellowship or communio. They have been stripped. They inhabit the desert of apocalypsis, an unveiling of the soul as it truly exists before God. All of their pieties and devotions and customs, which may in good times have offered security and order, have been taken away. In such conditions, it would make perfect sense to throw the ring into a pond and simply walk away. Or, more pragmatically, make a deal with the Dark Lord. Or put on the ring yourself with the intention to use it for good, but of course to end up consumed by it like Gollum. These are the normal human responses to scandal and crisis, but it's not the hobbit's response. Instead, they persist. They persist and they abide and they resist scandal, even though they are like believers without a church, children without parents, a people without a culture. Why and how? Well, here is where I like to say that it was something like baptism that sustained them. They are able to resist the scandal that must come, and did come, because though they are without the immediate practical support of the Shire and the Fellowship, they bear it as a symbol and a memory in their hearts. And so they possess a faith, a hope, and a love that allows them to face Mordor with clear-eyed courage and resilience, even though they are all alone and even as they face what appear to be, appears to be inevitable defeat. This is what the Christian has who truly possesses baptism. Think of baptism as a symbol and a memory, not in a merely figurative or cognitive way, but again, according to the richer Greek origin of these words. 
A symbolon is a token that affirms you are the owner of something. For example, an agreement between two parties in the ancient world might involve the breaking and sharing of a seal so that each party would, would possess something attesting to that agreement. Christians call doctrines and creeds symbola because they are real tokens of the mystery to which they refer. Similarly, baptism is a symbolon in that it gives to the one who receives it a genuine sharing in the mystery of Christ's passion, death, and resurrection. Meanwhile, the Greek word for memory, anamnesis, has the sense of a past event being made real in the present. The one who has baptism carries in his flesh and heart the real memory, and thus the real presence of Christ, who by baptism now really lives in me. This is how I like to think about baptism in our present circumstances. Baptism is the symbol and memory, and thus the real presence of Christ in his spirit to the soul of the believer, who, in casting out the power of scandal, has drawn me into the mystery of a sacramental and mystical fellowship of faith, stamping it as a reality in my flesh and in my heart. By it, even when everything around me is scandal, I remain interiorly linked to a holy church, a holy family, and a holy culture that are without spot, wrinkle, or blemish, because they have been washed by the water of the word and abide fully in Christ and his spirit. Baptism incorporates us into the only dimension capable of sustaining us, capable of conquering scandal and the contagion of envy, jealousy, resentment, and hatred that result from wielding the ring of power. What is needed then for the one facing scandal and crisis is to be drawn ever more deeply into the mystery of our baptismal relation to Christ so that it can become something that sustains and animates us despite everything else falling down around us. The essential answer to scandal is that we allow ourselves to be stripped anew by the apocalypsis of baptism by a genuine conversion to the new law of love that has been written on our hearts. What God really wants is a broken and a contrite heart, not mere sacrifice, not the multiplication of external religious practices alone, but the abiding of our hearts in the heart of his Son, a genuine participation in the dialogue of love internal to God himself, to which we are admitted by the mystery of baptism. God does not want golden vessels, says St. John Chrysostom, but golden hearts. Christ's heart, says Ratzinger, calls to our heart. It invites us to step forth out of the futile attempt at self-preservation. And by joining in the task of love, by handing ourselves over to him and with him, to discover the fullness of love which alone is eternity and which alone sustains the world. End quote. All of this has begun in us and lives in us as a baptismal presence in which Christ and his Spirit are truly poured out for us. Though in an immediate and practical sense, we may not have a supportive church, parents, or culture, by baptism we have access to a fellowship that will never abandon, abuse, betray, or scandalize us. 
Now, naturally in saying this, I'm under no illusion of just how idealistic and insufficient this may well appear. The pathos of the above is that most of us cannot thrive for long without the embodied care and support of a community. This is the whole point of the church. But in life, whether in here or out there, we will encounter deserts that seem to strip us of all supports. History itself is set within the dramatic passing away of this world, including the supports of the church, in, which, in what Tolkien called the long defeat. Whether we like it or not, scandal and crisis will be our lot. The greatest scandal would be never to have woken up to the personal encounter and interior abiding that Christ calls us to in baptism. In the meantime, something a little more practical to conclude, because of course hobbits are an infinitely practical folk. What ought a Christian life in the desert, beset by scandals and crises, look like? First, let baptism be your anchor and your reference point for negotiating scandal, for living the Christian life. This means living the Christian life as conversion to the mystery of the cross and the kenosis of self-emptying love. Don't become a pious Pelagian who multiplies spiritual gestures, practices, and devotions and seeks attainment of perfect doctrinal orthodoxy not for reasons of love, but because, as Ratzinger puts it, he cannot endure the tension of awaiting the uncompellable gift of love. Don't search for the security of bigger barns or towers. Abide in the freedom and the joy that comes from the Christ who already lives in you by baptism. Be wary of charismatic gurus, celebrity priests, online prophets, who promise quick fixes, but who so often do little more than perpetuate scandal. Seek flexible and fraternal fellowships of faith and friendships that do not demand that you sell your house, your car, your family life, or your dignity in the name of some charism. Remember that the long defeat should not be the gloomy, narrow, and moralistic defeat. Don't embrace a gospel of fear and despair. Along with prayer and fasting, embrace embodied forms of togetherness that typify hobbit civilization. Elevenses, beer, family, hospitality, festival, and fellowship. Remember that scandal is always in the human heart before it is out there in our communities. So remember to pull out the plank in our own eye first and to love and care for our neighbors with all the truth, goodness, justice, and mercy of the love of Christ. To conclude, in the end, the condition of our age makes it painfully obvious that there can be no shortcuts. Scandals will come. Tipping points of crisis will come. But the symbolon and the anamnesis we bear in our flesh has power yet. If only daily we re-entrust ourselves anew to its apocalypsis. In the mystery of baptism is the perennial path to abide the long defeat in joyful witness to the Christ who has loved us and saved us. And if we do entrust ourselves to baptism in this way, we can hope to become radiant icons of the truth and the joy of the Christian life and so effective evangelizers. Thank you very much. And we've got a few questions.
First one reads thus. How do we find the right balance between withdrawing from the world versus engaging it in the face of scandal? And that, my friends, is the million-dollar question. This is where things very much become practical. And the first thing I would say is, in line with what I've said in this talk, is we do have to start with ourselves and we do have to start with the condition of ourselves in relation to God. Have I truly internalized the gospel? Am I living from the center of my baptismal faith? And so this is the ground, this is the anchor in terms of any action we then do in the world. Next, I would say we have to employ the virtue of prudence and figure out, well, what is our station and calling and vocation in life? Am I a single person? Do I have a family? What is needed to cultivate my own faith, to cultivate that of my family? So if you have a family in some sense, you do have to take seriously cultivating an environment in which they can be fed and nurtured in the faith. This doesn't mean hunkering down in a bunker although perhaps that's tempting these days. Um, but it does mean in some sense giving them the foundations in the context of a, you know, environment that cultivates virtue and so on and so forth, so that then they can stand on their own feet and go out into the world and face things for themselves. So yes, we need a kind of Benedict option, but I always like to specify that that needs to be anchored and grounded in true conversion to Christ if it's not then going to become something that is grounded in fear and despair. Second question, how can we reconcile Tolkien's notion of the long defeat with our Christian call to hope amidst the darkness? It's another tricky question. First of all, Tolkien's notion of the long defeat is in some sense nothing more than his Christian consciousness that we are told to expect that things will get worse before the end. And so we seem to be, as opposed to liberal ideas of progress, the Christian understanding of history and where everything is headed is apocalyptic. It's not going to be some growing and growing and growing and growing in holiness as a world, as a church, and it's on that basis that Christ will come. In fact, it's precisely the opposite. So how do we live with hope, therefore, amidst this kind of challenge? And I do think, again, this is where internalizing baptism is so important, because in internalizing baptism, you're internalizing the rhythm and the pattern of Christ's own descent into darkness, into the mystery of the cross, suffering and death. In some sense, this is the path of the Christian, no matter where they find themselves in history, whether it's the good times or the bad times. We live our life according to this rhythm of going down with Christ into sin, confronting scandal, obstacle, so that we can rise up on the other side, resplendent in light and grace, redeemed in our hearts, so that on that basis we can live like a hobbit as they face unimaginable circumstances. The problem, of course, is, you know, crosses are not easy. And so there is always that risk of slipping back into the ways of the world, the way of the ruling ring. But again, this is in some sense the miracle and the power of baptism, is that it is possible for the one who lives not just on their own, but who lives in and with Christ. All right, next question. 
What do you mean by evangelize like a hobbit? How can we relate this hobbit-like faith, which is found through faith in Jesus? The essential meaning of evangelizing like a hobbit, I think of as if you don't first internalize your faith, if you don't first confront your own scandal and demons, then the message that you might bear with your lips, with your words, with your texts, all of that is in some sense going to be limited. If you yourself are not a light in the way that you conduct yourself, if the person you are trying to evangelize isn't able to see the fruit of the gospel in your own life, then this fundamentally undermines the message. We are first and foremost in ourselves the medium of the gospel message. So we need to be able to internalize that first. Otherwise, we end up getting caught up in all of the various scandals, which unfortunately today are so prevalent with their temptations. So that's basically what I would say in regards to that question. What is my favorite passage in Tolkien's writings? That's a good question. Am I allowed to just say all of it? Is that an acceptable, acceptable answer? I do like the way, and more generally first, that Tolkien does amplify in a very um, perceptive way the darkness and the light of human existence. He doesn't sugarcoat the kind of challenges that all of us go through. And you see this drama of good and evil unplaying throughout the entirety of, of his work, light and darkness, the temptations of the ruling ring of power to force technology, all these ways in which we try to control and dominate reality. So I think he really captures the essence or the pathos of human existence in that sense. I don't think I have an answer to that question in terms of what my actual favorite passage in Tolkien is. But I'll think about that. In the meantime, there's another question. <laughs> this is a good one. What does fighting back look like? Is there a point when a hobbit wouldn't turn the other cheek? Great question. In fact, in the Lord of the Rings, there are hobbits who take up a sword in various contexts. So you might say taking up a sword in and of itself in the right context is not always wrong, is not always forbidden. How you take up that sword, in what name and what cause, that is in some sense another question. So remember the, the part where Frodo is really sick and tired of Gollum sort of following him along. You know, he's, he's searching for the ring, Gollum is. Frodo's getting irritated. I don't want this guy on my back all the time. I wish we could just run him through with a sword. And in this context, Gandalf counsels him, don't be too quick to wreak vengeance because you never know you know, what God's providential plan might be. So there is, in some sense, a time and a place for fighting. There's a time and a place for a kind of force that is born from, not scandal, not reaction, but that actually aims towards a redemptive resolution. So something like that, I would say, is going on in regards to the way in which we are called to action in the concrete. But the question always is, is this action in the truth and does it lead to a deeper truth? 
or is it simply going to end up scandalizing even more? Next question. How do we know when we're ready to evangelize? Well, first and foremost, we're called to evangelize at all times in and out of season. So it's not like you have to wait till you're perfect to get out there. But I like to say that the first act of evangelization is always directed to yourself. And so don't think at any point that you have everything, that there's not more to learn, that your conversion can't go any deeper, because insofar as you address that, you're going to be that much more effective evangelizing out there. So evangelization simply happens when we live the gospel, when we live the truth of Christ. None of us are there entirely yet. We're all works in progress. But keep on internalizing that baptism. Keep on feeding from the sources of faith. And on that basis, you know, our readiness to evangelize will be at its highest and with that, I think we're done. Thank you very much for tuning in to this edition of Principles, and I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's Principles Live Lecture. Principles is made possible by our President's Council, our Principal Society, and all of our benefactors who share with the wider world the truths of wisdom and knowledge that students receive here at Christendom College. And if you're not yet a Principal Society member, please consider joining us and making this content free for others. Thank you so much and God bless you.